The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. See, I think it's quite possible that the 1960s represented the last burst of the human being before he was extinguished. And that this is the beginning of the rest of the future now. That from now on, there'll simply be all these robots walking around, feeling nothing, thinking nothing. And there'll be nobody left almost to remind them that there once was a species called a human being with feelings and thoughts. And that history and memory are right now being erased. And soon, nobody will really remember that life existed on the planet. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, July 20th, 2023. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Our discussion today is partially a continuation of the peace theme begun last week with Salim Mansour, but who this week, in his conversation with Robert, expands the discussion of world peace into an historical account of how the dystopian cultural zeitgeist in which we find ourselves in 2023 came into being. Tragically, many do not care about matters of past or future, and this comes with a cost. A disinterest in history is itself a symptom of a nihilistic culture, explained Salim. And in his assessment of what has caused the West to morally degrade into a self-inflicted state of nihilism, his concern is deeply motivated by the fact that the West is now sitting on the precipice of two different kinds of nuclear wars, if I may stretch the meaning of that term. On the one hand, we have the nuclear bomb. On the other, we have the nuclear family, and the nuclear developments on each of these fronts may leave you wondering which is the greater concern by the time you hear what Salim has to say on each of these very intertwined themes. Pick your poison, the explosion of a nuclear bomb or the implosion of the nuclear family. Or is there another option? Decide for yourself right after our reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform, and visit us at justrightmedia.org, where you can access all of our social media links, archive broadcasts, and the support button that makes it easy for you to support the show. Because as always... Your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. With us today is Professor Salim Mansur of Western University in London, Ontario. Good day, Salim. Good day. I'd like to set the stage for our discussion today, Salim, by revisiting the anti-Vietnam War protests of the 1960s. During that time, the song Where Have All the Flowers Gone by Pete Seeger and Joe Hickerson rose to the top of the charts as perhaps the quintessential anti-war song. It is fitting that Seeger's lyrics were inspired by a Cossack folk song. The roots of the Cossacks, of course, are thought to, by some, to have originated north of the Black Sea near the Dnieper River, the very area in Ukraine, now Russia, currently embroiled in war. Complementing that song, the term flower power came about as a result 
of an anti-war protester named Ed Sanders putting rose stems in the rifle barrels of soldiers of the 503rd Military Police Battalion during a march on the Pentagon on October 21st, 1967. That march was attended by between 100,000 and 200,000 protesters. We would later learn that Ed Sanders was a beatnik poet, a nonconformist, postmodern, bohemian hedonist, a man who typified the philosophy of that counterculture generation. Fast forward to today, where we have yet another war in which the United States is embroiled, yet this war is being cheered on by the people in power, the press, and by the vast majority of the people at large. Very few protests have occurred in the United States against this U.S.-Russia proxy war. The largest may have been the Rage Against the War Machine demonstration, which took place at the Lincoln Memorial on February 19th of this year, but it only drew a few thousand protesters. So, Salim, where are the protesters? Where is the outrage of yet another U.S. war in their endless chain of wars feeding their military-industrial complex and the insatiable cabal of neocons? Or, to put it another way, where have all the flowers gone? Very good question. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Long time ago. When will they ever learn, right? Exactly. And, and not only that song, I mean, Pete Seeger, and sung by so many other people, I, re I recall Peter, Paul and Mary and others, or Bob Dylan's songs uh, from that period, you know, how many times must the cannonballs fly before they are forever banned? You know, the answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Yeah, uh, well, it is not only where have all the flowers gone, where has the left gone? You're putting it in context of the Vietnam War. That's a half a century ago now, right? A whole two, three generation of people have come along. People who are now in the same age or cohort of our current prime minister were not born or were infants, children, right? So. There's been a generational change or several generational change. There has been a political change that has taken place in North America and United States as the epicenter of what was at that time the center of the free world, the leader of the free world. We were part of that free world. All of that has to be put in context. What has happened is not only where the flowers have gone, what has happened to the free world, but politics is downstream. It is the culture that has changed. So if we really want to explore why today at this point in time, when we are really at the precipice, I mean, as we are speaking today, NATO is meeting in Vilnius, Lithuania, and the principal topic is, of course, the proxy war in Ukraine against Russia, led by NATO. Our prime minister there has announced ahead of the conference that Canada will double the contribution to this war effort and will increase the manpower support for the Ukraine war. And there is not a sound anywhere in Canada, not a word except for few voices in the alternate media, people like Colonel Douglas McGregor, Scott Ritter, and others, 
no one is speaking about the war. The only political leader who has stood up and spoken against the war is Donald Trump, the former president. And I think Robert Kennedy has talked about it, but he has talked about it in a murky way. He's against the war, but he defends the rights of Ukraine and the support for Ukraine and so on and so forth. And again, that's a historical question that we can go into. But we are really at the edge of the precipice of a possible escalation into a nuclear war. And the collective West is sleeping. There's an upsurge in violence and opposition in Europe. I came back from Europe only a few weeks ago, just ahead of the outbreak in France uh, and now the fall of the government in Netherlands. Is it related to the war? Is there a peace movement that is bringing this about? Well, at least from all observable data, that's not the case. It's the internal problem of economics, soaring prices, hyperinflation the level of unemployment and so on and so forth. And of course, the big elephant in the room is the effects of open-door migration and immigration. But the question that you're asking, where have the flowers gone? What about the peace movement? We see a deathly silence from all the institutions in the Western world that supposed to be the leaders in thought, in ideas, and therefore in politics. What has happened to the culture of the West that we are in this situation where there are no church leaders? During the Vietnam War, there were church leaders. There were priests and fathers. The most famous priests, if you recall, Robert, were the Berrigan brothers, Father Berrigan, Daniel Berrigan, you know, Catholic priests who were right out there, who were taken to prison. There were others, you know, the Catholic Church, the Protestant churches. So the church was at the forefront of the peace movement during the Vietnam War. Even we had our own prime minister, that time the father of the current prime minister, Pierre Trudeau, re-elected in 1980, took up a position to go abroad, to go to Europe, to meet with the leaders, and to talk about nuclear disarmament and peace. People felt threatened with the possibility of another escalation as it happened in Cuban crises and the two superpowers edging towards a nuclear confrontation. So yes, things have dramatically changed. And we can argue and we can say which was important and which is not. But one thing is pretty much clear. The West, the collective West, is a much degraded society in terms about the most fundamental issue in our time, that is the issue of war and peace that there can be no war, there must not be any war. And that if that's what we are edging towards, every other issue then takes a backseat, is of no consequence. Whether we have a climate change policy, whether we have a new green deal, whether we have digital banking or what have you, it doesn't matter because everything, the world will be inherited by cockroaches after a nuclear war and there is no further discussion. Welcome to the Stu Peter Show. My name is Stu. Well, NATO had a big meeting this week. They put it in Vilnius, Lithuania. That's the capital of the former Soviet Republic. One of the 30 places that 30 years ago we promised we'd never expand NATO into. Well, of course, because we live under the empire of lies, we broke that promise, creating enormous distrust with Russia and leading directly to this enormously dangerous war that we're funding right now, thanks to Kevin McCarthy, who, by the way, promised not to fund the war. So what happened at this NATO meeting exactly? Well, in essence, Joe Biden says that the Ukrainians have defeated Russia in Ukraine, and he says that he'll drag out the status quo for as long as he can. 
Zelensky was hoping that he'd talk NATO into letting him in, but of course, they're just stringing him along like usual. They announce that they're letting in Sweden, but not Ukraine. So Lil Zelensky basically got invited to the prom, but then stood up by his date. Biden said bluntly, hey, Ukraine will never be let into NATO as long as they're at war with Russia. And that war with Russia is all set to just keep going because Biden has promised to keep funneling your money there for as long as he can get away with it. And of course, with little Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker, how long is apparently forever? The more innocent Ukrainians that are dying and being obliterated, the more Ukrainian flags are flying on U.S. soil, the more simps, the more support for McCarthy and Joe Biden and all of your money, hundreds of billions of dollars being funneled into this shithole country that means absolutely nothing to our American national security. You're not talking about Ukraine at your dinner table. It doesn't matter to you about Ukraine. The quiet strength of Walton's Mountain always seemed to shelter our house from the rest of the world. In 1937, it was hard for our family and neighbors to believe that we could ever be touched by the trouble that was reaching out from Europe. In Berlin, Adolf Hitler assures the world that Germany has no hostile intent towards its neighbors. Still, he continues to amass arms and armies at a staggering rate. Even the young are not exempt from military service. Why this tremendous buildup of weaponry and military might? Some say the dictator has his eye on Austria, its small neighbor to the south. Since the Treaty of Versailles, Austria has been separated from Germany. But now Hitler has repudiated the Versailles Treaty of World War I. Is this a step toward an attempted takeover of Austria? In his book, Mein Kampf, Hitler vows to lead the Germans to world dominance. A dynamic, spellbinding speaker, Hitler exhorts his devoted followers to cries of Sieg Heil, Sieg Heil, Hail Victory, Hail Victory. So coming back to the post-World War situation in, in America, this generation came of age after the war. That is, in the 50s, they came of age, you know, in a society, in a country that was the most powerful and the richest country in the world. The American economy, the GDP, was over 50% of the world's GDP. Today, that GDP has declined, and this is the second behind China in terms of GDP. It was the center of the world manufacturing and all other activities that you can think of. It was the leader in technology, in science, you know. Universities opened up and with the GI Bill, all the people who came back and they were going into the colleges, they were taking on degrees. This is the generation that grew up what later on John Kenneth Galbraith, the professor at Harvard economist who worked with and served in the administration of John F. Kennedy, 
who had served also in the administration of Franklin Roosevelt during the war, called the age of affluence. You know, this was the most affluent generation in all of history that you can think about, you know. But this was also the generation that grew up under the shadow of the mushroom cloud. So there you have it. You know, you, you have the most affluent generation that came of age with technology and uh, the science and education that was available and provided. And the whole world was in envy. Envy, I say it in a positive sense. America was the leader, was a beacon of freedom. Everybody wanted to be in America. Good, bad, and ugly, the ugly American didn't matter. America wasn't. America had been physically untouched by the war. Nobody in America of that generation had seen people walking along with guns shooting up their neighbors in a war. No city had been bombed. No foreign troops had landed on American shores. And Europe was devastated. Asia was devastated. So this generation that we're talking about, they came of age and the peace movement that we are associating with is a peace movement that began as a result of the Vietnam War. But this peace movement that came together was also came together or converged with other social and political and cultural events taking place based upon race, that is a black and white issue, you know, civil rights movement, the Vietnam War movement. So we're talking about the 60s, but those two things converged. There was a whole technological shift that was taking place in America. It had begun earlier, but the effects were coming together in the 60s and would then transform the American society. That's the cultural side of it. And as I have always argued, culture is upstream, politics and economics in that sense is downstream. One of the critical and most seminal development and change that has yet to completely play out in our lifetime was the coming of the pill. And the coming of the pill in the late 50s change the entire nature of the very fundamental pillar of a society and of a culture that is the nature of a family, you know. And though the children born in the 1940s, this affluent generation coming of age, came of age with where the pill was going to change the entire sexual mores of the society as women came to the workforce. And the nature of family and then the sexual relationship would be fundamentally altered, especially Catholic families that were large families. I mean, our own prime minister, former prime minister, Jean Chrétien, I believe he was one child in a family of something like 12 or more children. Right? And then within his lifetime, Quebec, a Catholic society that fought its own battle on the basis of the revenge of the cradle, having large Catholic families, you know. The quiet revolution, and within the lifetime of Jean Chrétien, the whole thing was reversed. Quebec went into a negative fertility rate, right? So that has a profound consequence in terms of society, in terms of cultural more, and so on. That's what's happening in the United States. The feminist movement, 
that came forward in the nature of the workforce change, the nature of man-woman relationship change, the empowerment of women and the consequences of that in terms of family, where the women goes out to work and the family dwindles to a nuclear family, which in effect over time comes to mean that the family is simply the biological parents and a designer child, one or two, you know. What, say, the Cretians family or, say, the Kennedy family, and, you know, look at how large Kennedy's family was, that is Joe Kennedy and the brothers and sisters of John Kennedy. A family meant uncles, aunts, grandparents, children, and a whole connection of people. So within a generation, family has changed into a nuclear family. And the children of this nuclear family that grows up grows up in a wholly different situation, which has a different psychological impact individually, and then sociologically, socially, that has a, another profound impact. And what is happening, let me throw it out right now. In this period, we see the seeds of what later on people will call the culture of narcissism. That is, ultimately, you know, the connections are broken and an individual becomes simply self-interested in himself, herself. Now, I don't know what pronoun to use, so say individuals in the plural sense, in themselves, you know. And, and that has a critical social impact. A liberal society, a liberal democratic society that came into being, the industrial age that came about at the latter part of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, again in Europe, one of the key aspects in terms of ideas and intellectual discourse was a sense of history, study of history understanding history of where we have come from, what are the changes that have taken place, where we are going, and so on. History has diminished. The study of history has completely diminished because in, in a society with a people that are only interested in themselves and their desires to be fulfilled, their needs to be fulfilled, their individual concerns, the sense of history is lost because there's no interest in the past nor any interest in the future. It becomes a very sterile relationship, you know. And, and that's where we have arrived at. A, a, a culture of narcissism ends up in a culture of wokeism where we are. You, know, you have talked about that. I have talked about that in the past. It is a culture of death. It's, well, it's, not, just, um, it's not just narcissism, Salim, which is a philosophy of self-love. Yes. You, you see the image of narcissus looking in the pool staring at the image of himself, you know, enamored by it. Mm -hmm. It's also a culture of hedonism, pleasure for pleasure's sake at the expense of all else. That's with the free love generation, the drug use, the psychedelic generation. And then what we have today is an offshoot of that, perhaps part of that, which is the philosophy of nihilism. There are no values. There is no objective universe. There is no objective laws. There can be no right, no wrong, no good, no bad. It's all subjective. Yeah. It's subjective. It's like whatever. And this is part of the narcissism well, yeah. part of our culture and the culture of the beatnik generation was that whatever I want goes. If I yeah. want to be a woman, I can be a woman. 
regardless of objective reality. Right. Right. That that's the pinnacle of the nihilistic, narcissistic philosophy we're seeing today in the transgenderism. I don't think it can get any more bizarre than that. And today, what do we have? The art is no better. The music is hardly better. You look at Lady Gaga's latest presentation, where she's out there playing the piano. And by the way, she's an excellent pianist and a fantastic performer. However, what is she doing? She's out there doing her thing and her entourage are vomiting on her as she's playing the piano. That's the level of culture today we see from the nihilists who have no values, the narcissists who are in love with themselves to the detriment of friends and family and society. And so in that respect, Salim, I would suggest that the anti-war protesters of that time in the 60s share the same sort of philosophy as the pro-war people today. As we're speaking, I read the news that in Netherlands, uh, the Miss Universe is a man who considers himself a woman and will represent Netherlands in the final round of the Miss Universe contest. So a man could very well be the Miss Universe for the world. I mean, that would be the ultimate in, in or maybe there's more ultimates to come. I mean, the, the very word ultimate has lost its meaning, you know. But all joking aside, we have to keep recognizing the main reason that this war is so bad. It's because it's insanely suicidally dangerous. This NATO summit meeting, Biden recommended sending cluster munitions to Ukraine. Just last year, he said cluster bombs were a war crime, but now we're urging Ukraine to use them. How would we expect Russia to react to that exactly? Well, Washington expects them to do nothing. But the struggle to control the Russian war effort is still on. And make no mistake, Russia is not currently ruled by its most hawkish elements. There are people in Russia who want to use nuclear weapons to fight and win this war, just like there are lunatics here in the United States who think nuclear weapons are safe to use. These cluster bombs, just like advanced tanks and advanced jets, are just another step of escalation toward this blowing up into World War III. And that's exactly what these assholes want. Instead of a serious push toward peace, we get more promises of forever war and fantasies about Ukraine retaking Crimea or invading Russia itself. These people are nuts. We're led by deranged lunatics who literally will not be happy until they've ignited the World War III that they want so badly. You'll be able to tell your kids a story where you were when the United States went into utter collapse. It happened right before our eyes. You'll tell them that the mainstream media didn't even cover it. Some serious breaking news from the world of golf. We are focusing on saving you some money. Yes, the first lightning deals for Amazon Prime Day, they arrived overnight. They buried the story. Putin and China saw it happening. They watched as the United States shot itself in the foot. And at the same time, they signed new deals to become the dominant superpower team in the world. You'll be able to tell your kids that the clearest sign of collapse emerged when most Americans were celebrating the 4th of July holiday, buried in hot dogs and hamburgers and fireworks, blissfully unaware that, you know, back in Washington, D.C., President Biden sent out the warning that he was actively preparing thousands of U.S. troops to be sent to Europe. Yeah, because we're at war with Russia, whether or not they want to admit it or not. 
They won't call it a war. They'll just send Americans to die in Ukraine. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. And of course, Robert's full hour-plus version of today's conversation with Salim is also available on any of Just Right's video channels, while our broadcast version of that conversation continues now. Iconic movies uh, that we can now look back upon, it, it could be taken as a spoof or it could be taken as a propaganda. I'm thinking about movies like Dr. Strangelove. You'll stop fearing the bomb and begin to love it, right? Well, we've begun to love it. We don't take care about it anymore. The children who became the vanguard of the peace movement in that sense, culturally, politically, and in their activism, their children and grandchildren have come to love the bomb that they don't care about it anymore. You, you see? There's even, Salim, believe it or not, there are even today people out there who do not think the atom bomb or the nuclear bomb exists. They suggest that perhaps that it was a chemical fire in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah. That this is a hoax. Yeah. I've seen comments on Reddit to that effect. And so, again, it is the destruction of knowledge and the ignorance out there that is going to be our downfall. Yeah, I mean, it is It is basically like, hey, hey, Bob, don't bother me with your explanations. I, I, I want to go and take my, you know, next shot of whatever it is. I mean, when cocaine is found outside of the uh, national security room in the White House and the rest of the country couldn't care less. You know, shrug the shoulder that this current president and all the disclosure about his corruption and his sellout and his son. And there he is with a straight face representing America to the world, you know, and nobody cares. Here's the president who's sending cluster bomb to Ukraine. And Bob Dylan was singing about how many cannonballs must be fired before it is all brought to an end, before it is banned. You know, and people were rallying around it. So again, the juxtaposition of these images and these facts tells how far degraded or derailed what was once the beacon of freedom, freedom not as licentiousness, freedom not as a responsibility, freedom the way John F. Kennedy explained it, that we hold your values, communism, as repugnant, freedom as free thinking, respect of the individual. I think we talked about this freedom for rational people in a rational world or something. That's right, exactly. And by the way, the Whig Party, the great Whig Party, in that classic sense, going back to Adam Smith, and all the way down, which is what you and I, again, into political philosophy, share in common. You born in Newfoundland and I born in India, in Bengal, separated by 12,000 miles. But what is the idea that brings us together? The idea of freedom based upon individual right and everything surrounding it, right? So this great Whig party becomes a war party during World War I. And then it is destroyed. The Whig Party has never, that is the Liberal Party of England, has never elected a prime minister after Lloyd George. 
who was the war prime minister, the liberals were replaced by the Labour Party. And liberal had become the third or the fourth party in England. Whereas it had dominated the 19th century and going back to the 18th century, you know, it was the party in that sense of the values on the which, you know, we talk about enlightenment that blossomed. So left and right in that sense, the left was the anti-war party. And I would say what has happened is left has betrayed all its values. There is no left party, but there was a left party. And that left party was at least nominally, not in substance, I would distinguish, nominally presented itself as a caring party of the less privileged, the underclass, the new immigrants. I'm talking about, again, American politics, you know, and a working class party, whereas the Republican Party was the party of the WASP ruling class, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. That's why immigrants came and they joined the Democratic Party or they were recruited into Democratic Party. The Republican Party was the party of the old landed interests and so on and so forth. But also in that sense became the party that represented the oligarchs, the financial interests, the banking interests, the industrial interests, you know, the question of freedom, America is the land of freedom, the beacon of freedom, was a constitutional principle. And as a constitutional principle, there is, in that sense, no left-right division in America. It is a defense of the Constitution, the first 10 amendments, and so on and so forth. But those started changing with the rise of the progressive movement, which was on the left. But on the question of war and peace, it was the left. So in the 1960s, there was that left position in American policy. But there's another Fascinating element, Robert, that comes into play. This most affluent generation goes to war. That means in America at that time and, and time preceding the 60s was that every male was conscripted or drafted. You have to report to your draft body. You know, you turn 18, you're registered and you will be called up when needed. There's no exception. I just was reading recently President Franklin Roosevelt's son's book, As He Saw It. He's talking about his father, Elliot Roosevelt. It's fascinating. In 1939, Elliot is in his late 20s. He's starting a business, and then the war comes, and he comes to Washington and he's talking with his father about his business and what he's going to do and so on and so forth. What will be America's position? America's at that time neutral. This is 1939, 1940. And his father tells him that yeah, America has to be prepared and ready. And that's what his government is going to do. But he doesn't tell him what he should do. Elliot should do. Elliot has to make his own decision. Elliot goes back to Texas and he registers with his draft body. And uh, he joins the United States Army Air Force. You know, he registers there. He comes back to Washington and he tells his father. And father begins to, <laughs> tears roll, swells up in his eyes and cry. He doesn't say anything. And Elliot says that his father was so proud of him that he had gone and registered. He was not taking an exemption because his father was the president. And in 1940, his father would be running for the third term. So. 
Now you are in the 1960s. The kids born in the 1940s. Now they're faced with this war and draft is taking place and they, they have to join up or they look at the deferment. Who are we talking about? We are talking about the generation that produced the Clintons, the Bushes, that is Bush 43, Donald Trump, Al Gore. Obama is, of course, 10 years younger. The Vietnam War is over. That's not doesn't come in. But that generation, the generation born during or end of World War II, all of them without exception took deferment, whatever the reason it was, you see. Who went to war? The middle class and the lower middle class kids went to war. They couldn't get the deferment. Or the blacks in number. Remember the famous case of Muhammad Ali, or at that time, Cassius Clay, world heavy boxing champion. He was called up. He said, I will not go. What do I have against the Vietnamese? <laughs> they haven't shot at me. They haven't done anything to me, you know. And he stripped of his thing and sent to prison, right? So what I'm driving at is this generation's raising the campaign of peace movement has also got another element attached to it. That is, they have to go to war. They don't want to go to war. As many as can are either going to seek deferment or going to run away. So many of them came to Canada to escape from the drop. That is what led to the peace movement, the campaign, the violence on university and college campuses that ended up in the tragedy in Kent State University in Ohio with the National Guards coming in and a shootout that took place and a number of students died. This was the inflamed position, the assassinations and the murders and the cities burning, the convergence that took place with this civil rights movement and the anti-war movement coming together. And again, the, the numbers of blacks who were being drafted and sent to Vietnam, the blacks or the minority population in much heavier number were involved in the Vietnam War as a conscript army. And then that enraging conflict in the political arena led to President Nixon's massive victory in 1968, when Johnson basically said that he's not going to seek second term. He knew that, you know, the war had destroyed his career, you know, there would be no possibility. The Democratic Party ended in a massive, you know, disorder. Nixon wins the 68 election massively. He talks about the silent majority and so on and so forth. But on the political level, what does he do? He ends the draft. And with the ending of the draft, the plug is pulled. The peace movement fades away. You know, there are not enough women here. Did you ever hear the story of the convention, it was in America, women's suffrage. A hundred years ago, they were fighting for the right to vote. And they had a, one of their early conventions. The chairman concluded her speech and said, ladies, we have a big job to do. We must now return to our home communities and carry on the fight for the right to vote. We will have many problems and many detractors, but in our hour of deepest need, we can pray to God, and she will hear our prayers.
a song that I wrote ten years ago has become well known because of another gracious lady, Marlena Dietrich. She sings it in a different language than I wrote it in, but I think it sounds even better. Even though I can't sing it all, she starts off. Sag mir, wo die Blumen sind. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing. Where have all the flowers gone? Long time ago. Where have all the flowers gone? Girls have picked them, everyone. When will we ever learn? When will we ever learn? Where have all the young girls gone? Long time passing. Where have all the young girls gone? Long time ago Where have all the young girls gone? Taken husbands, everyone When will we ever learn? When will we ever learn? Where have all the young men gone? Long time passing Where have all the young men gone? Long time ago Where have all the young men gone? They're all in uniform Oh, when will we ever learn? When will we ever learn? thoughts together, son? There's a lot to say. I want to say it right. Your mother told me what happened in church this morning. Don't you think Germany's a little far away to worry about what's going on over there? Didn't seem so far away in 1917. No, but uh, they learned their lesson then. I don't figure they're going to start any trouble now. You agree with Matt Fordwick? I guess most people figure the Chronicle was going to cover local news, son. Even the major world events the city newspapers. Daddy, the world's getting smaller every day. And pretty soon, any piece of news is going to be local news. And one book burning, one treaty violation, one threat to human dignity ought to be reported in every local newspaper across this country. Now, I got to be free to pass on to my readers anything that I think is important. That right's been done away with in Germany completely. You know what Adolf Hitler says? He says that free press is drivel. Drivel. And if there's one book he doesn't agree with, he burns it. He burns every copy of it. Now, I don't want to see that happen here. I don't want to 
don't see that happen either, son. I'm proud of you. Acting on what you believe. This is interesting, Salim, that if you go back to that age, the protests really began with the involvement of the United States primarily in around 1965 is when a lot of the troops started to go over to Vietnam. And so this was during the time of a democratic administration under Johnson. Mm -hmm. And the protests continued under Nixon, a Republican administration. So it did not necessarily follow along party lines. They were demonstrating against the United States being in the war, regardless of who the president was. Right. Bring it into today. And what do we have? We have in power, in Canada at least, you know, the shining example of our broken culture, Justin Trudeau, and in the United States, the usurper Biden, who is a shining example of the destruction of that society as well and the corruption of that society. So... I don't think that the supporters of these people make it seemly to go out and protest what Justin Trudeau is going to say. I mean, these are the followers of Justin Trudeau. These are the followers of Biden and the Democrat Party and the Nancy Pelosi's and that kind of ilk. So if they were to go out and protest the Ukraine war, they'd be protesting their icons. Perhaps there's an element of that in there. Or rather paradoxically, not their icons, because they have no icons anymore. That's right. They're nihilists. They have no values. Because that's the narcissist culture. They have no value, except the value is themselves. Freedom means for them licentiousness, what they can do. It is not freedom in the construct of the enlightenment value, the freedom to think, the freedom to speak, the freedom to dare, freedom to question. All of those are now being suffocated. You know, if you question wokeism, then you are a bigot, you're a racist, right? So what has happened is the inversion of a free society in that classic sense of vigism, you know, which is where you and I associate with our support and defense of freedom. That goes back to Adam Smith. That goes back to Voltaire that goes back to the idea that a free society is a society that respects an individual because it is the individual rights that makes meaningful what a free society is. So in that sense, consistent with our philosophical position, I would say you and I both would say, you know, it's none of our business as as what Pierre Elliott Trudeau said, you know, what happens in the bedroom of, of the nation. I'm not interested in, you know, what sort of orifice you are trying to penetrate or experiment with. A man is a man biologically, you know, with an XY chromosome, and a woman is is a woman biologically with two X chromosomes. So coming back to the peace movement, what happened was not only in in the case of Vietnam, and you're right, I mean, the war went on into the Republican time. The war started under a Democratic president, Lyndon Bain Johnson, and it ended under a Republican president, but it continued before it ended. That was Nixon, Ford. But the critical thing that took away the passion of the peace movement at that point in time was the ending of the draft. People were burning their draft cards. Remember, that was the symbolic burning that was taking place. You know, people... Quite rightly, quite rightly, I would say. 
Conscription yeah. is slavery. Yeah. And now in retrospect, again, history is contested. History is paradoxical. In retrospect, one can say that the anti-conscription movement in Canada was ironically a peace movement, both in 1914-18 war. It was led by the people in Quebec. Mm -hmm. And then again in 1939-1945, uh, the conscription to which our prime minister at that time famously replied, conscription if necessary, but not necessarily conscription, to diffuse the crisis. And the French-Canadian, in large part, did not participate in that war, despite the fact that France had fallen, which is their connection to Europe, had fallen, but they did not. So now in retrospect, the people engaged in anti-conscription were against the war. This war is symptomatic of the degraded West. This war should never have happened. If there's an unnecessary war, I mean, people have talked about the unnecessary war and written about it, the Second World War, or even the First World War. In fact, the phrase, the unnecessary war, was first used by Winston Churchill to refer to World War I in which he participated as a member of the cabinet, war cabinet. But there it was. And so the generation that is the left, and I use it again, the idea of left in this discussion, not as communist or as socialist, left in the classic sense. I mean, after all, the Whigs were the left in British politics. It was about freedom. It was about market. It was about the people. And the Tories were about the landed class, the upper class, the privileged class, the protection of their values. And so war was the antithesis, the complete opposite of freedom, because war is about control. War is about imposition of everything that chokes freedom, right? It is conquest, it is imposition. The victor in a war is going to impose their values upon the vanquish. So the left in that sense was the anti-war movement. In France, the largest party on the left was the communist party. In Italy, the largest party on the left was again the Communist Party. And in Germany, the largest party on the left was the Socialist Party. And you have in the 1980s, president in France, a socialist and communist alliance, Francois Mitterrand. You have in, in Germany, the socialist SPD chancellor, Willy Brandt. You have Euro-communist leaders in Italy, in Spain, and then you have the left Labour Party leaders in Britain. They're all coming together in this campaign in early 90s as NATO, America, led by America then, now, was committing itself to position intermediate nuclear forces armed with nuclear warheads in Europe. And a campaign was begun. So what I'm leading up to is that in the affluent West, there was concern 
about nuclear war. It was real, at least in the minds of a very substantive number of people among the citizen and among the leaders who were on the left. And then what happens? 1989, Soviet Union, the Berlin Wall comes down, and by 1991, Soviet Union is gone. And so that real fear of a conflict that can escalate to a nuclear war with a generation who are still in power, because all of them, Pierre Trudeau, Mitterrand, Chancellor Brandt, uh, Helmut Schmidt uh, and others, Maggie Thatcher, they all were young or had participated in, had been drafted in the Second World War. They'd seen the devastation. They'd experienced it. They knew the dangers. And now you think about it. 1989 is over 40 years ago, or coming to 40 years. So the current group of leaders, Rishi Sunak in England, Macron in France, our Justin over here, they were not around. They have no memory of 89. They have no memory of anything before 89. So the whole generation that has grown up has grown up within that larger context of a culture of narcissism. It's, um, it's a circular thing, isn't it, sometimes, history? and. I just watched, just before we sat down to have this conversation, I watched a video by Glenn Beck where he gave a little story of where he was hosting a woman who had just escaped communist China recently. And it was at Christmas time and she was putting up the lights and she broke into tears saying that when I was in prison in communist China, I was making these lights. And she was put into prison for being a Christian. And then she said that, I wish that America would fall. And he said, why? And he says, because only then will you realize what you've lost, to paraphrase her. Mm. And there's the circle. It's almost as if we need some catastrophe to understand exactly what we are lost. And on that theme of circular history, you know, the lyrics of that song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, are circular as well. Seeger wrote the first three stanzas, and then Dickerson wrote the last two to bring it circular. Because the first three say, where all the flowers gone? Young girls have picked them, everyone. Where have all the young girls gone? Gone for husbands, everyone. Where have all the husbands gone? Gone for soldiers, everyone. And then Hickerson added, where are all the soldiers gone? Gone to graveyards, everyone finishing up with where are all the graveyards gone, gone to flowers, everyone. So, Celine, to answer the question that we first started with, where have all the flowers gone? Well, they're on the graveyards, and they're forgotten. So hopefully the girls will pick them up again and remember. And before we start the cycle all over again, I hope it doesn't come to war. But it's been a fascinating conversation, this delving into history and, and the nature of our culture and politics. And I thank you very much for your insight once again. Thank you. Thank you, Robert.
A closing thought. It should never be forgotten that politics is war disguised. As Salim suggested, the victor in a war will impose their values on the vanquished, which is exactly the consequence of each and every election, isn't it? And as with a physical war, most of those fighting political battles are unaware of what it is they're actually fighting for, or worse, who they are actually fighting for. Now, on the issue of imposed values, I imagine there are those on the side of freedom who would laugh at the idea that they are imposing freedom on their political adversaries, because by its nature, freedom represents an absence of coercion and imposition. The quote-unquote imposition of freedom is practically a contradiction in terms. But those on the left don't see it that way. For them, freedom represents the imposition of personal responsibility and accountability, which in any civilized society must be imposed on everyone equally, whether on the left or right. In a democracy, and certainly in the theory of democracy, each side of the political polarity agrees to allow the other side to impose their values upon them should they lose the election. And what we've seen over the years is that in the broadest terms, the right has accepted their defeats and these conditions, while the left never accepts defeat and never honors its democratic contract. This dynamic is itself a huge elephant in the room, one I'm sure we'll be talking about on upcoming episodes of this show. But whatever form any war takes, it's winner-take-all. Because to lose is to lose it all. Such is the nature and substance of the left-right polarity, this time in the context of collectivism versus individualism. Fortunately, up till now, for most of us in North America, the major form of our current war has come in the form of the information war. And even more significantly, we are on the front lines, which is exactly where we'll be when you join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright I understand the Vatican has added an 11th commandment Thou shalt not pill <laughs>